Welcome to episode 60 of the Swamp Flex podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in 7th Ward, New Orleans, just outside the fairgrounds. Uh, it's summer, so it's hot. It's hot as hell. So, you know, we spent a lot of time inside watching movies. That's actually what I've been doing the last <laughs> couple weeks. It feels good. What have you been watching lately? Okay, so I kind of went on these different kicks. Like, there was a few days where I was watching nothing but, like, Menace to Society, Boys in the Hood, Don't Be a Menace in South Central While Drinking Your Juice in the Hood. Then <laughs> Which I is watched, kind of the spoof of that genre, right? Right. It's those two movies in particular. And then Snow on the Bluffs, it was all these like kind of urban... Thrillers? Thr- yeah. I guess they're like dramas though, right? Yeah. I mean, Menace... I kind of forgot how fucked up Menace to Society is. It's really gruesome. And it's funny watching it back to back with Boys in the Hood... Because Boys in the Hood is a more like kind of optimistic. It's still tragic, but it's tragic in a more Hollywood sense. And Menace to Society feels like actual gritty, uh, nihilistic. So it's a nice counterbalance. And I guess Friday would be like the halfway point between those movies and uh, Don't Be a Menace. Yeah. It's like it's a comedy, but it's also got this like sort of melancholy about being poor in those neighborhoods. Yeah. Friday is a very good film or I think it's a good comedy, but rewatching don't be a menace, man, a lot of it. I don't know why I had this idea that it was so funny just from like when I was a kid, I used to love that movie and now watching it, it's like this movie sucks. Like (laughs) some of the jokes are still, they still land, but no, it's just, not very good. I remember um, one really good visual joke from that film where it's like an exterior of a house and these like autumn leaves are falling and right. there's no tree around at all and they just keep falling into this like absurd like piling up of leaves. Yeah, which is, I think that's from Boys in the Hood. Right. Yeah. One of the gags I liked is like they're dancing at a party and they're going to different couples and it's kind of accelerating into provocative like sexual dancing and then the last couple is just butt naked having <laughs> sex on the dance floor yeah there, there's a little stuff like that that's funny i mean that stuff that like leslie nielsen kind of stuff is not going to be as funny to you as it was when you were 10 but it's weird like airplane and naked gun i rewatch those from time to time and they still hold up in a way that this one doesn't yeah and i think it was because after watching menaces Society and boys in the hood there were such like powerful films that needed to be made at that moment. And for this to come out a year later and kind of undercutting it, like spoofing, it didn't really feel right. Yeah. Um, you know, but so there's a little bit of that going on in my reassessment. It's like it. choosing a weird target. Yeah. Like, yeah. and then they went on to do like the scary movies and whatever, which weren't very good either. <laughs> but um, anyway, so I watched those and then I got on this big, family movie kick so i watched life is a zucchini which you had recommended from last year which i loved and i'll bring up in our conversation later and then i just got obsessed with paddington yes (laughs) watched i watched the first one and i fell in love with it and i immediately rewatched it the next day and then i rented paddington 2 and same thing i loved it i cried and then i watched it again the next morning. I kind of like a Magic Mike thing with that movie where like the first one I was like, this is pretty good. I, I get the the appeal. 
Mm-hmm. And then the second one I thought was like a masterpiece. Like the second one like blew me away. I think the plot of the second one is so much more interesting. Like he literally goes to prison. <laughs> <laughs> he just like turns all the convicts in onto like cooking and he makes the prison feel like home. Like every place he touches. It looks like Wes Anderson decorated a cake. It's <laughs> like what the prison looks like. Yeah. The, the second one and the first one too. It's just like if really does feel like the person you love most in the world is giving you a hug. <laughs> you know, it's just like so wholesome and makes you feel so good. And the message it's spreading is so simple. Just be kind yeah. to people. And then there's like a more complex, like political metaphor about like immigration, immigration and Brexit, I think is plays into the second one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's stuff there for adults too, that want a little social commentary with it. But I mean, I think the main thing you get out of it is just this just wholesome feel good thing and like it's so good at just making you feel positive about the world so fell in love with that i actually am gonna make some marmalade (laughs) next week i looked up a marmalade recipe like i want to try some marmalade sandwiches i'm full-on paddington mode right now brian gleason in the prison yeah yeah big hairy gruff man making uh marmalade oh my god (laughs) And then kind of related to that on the family movie front, uh, last night I watched Stepfather from 1987, which is like one of the best slasher horror movies from that time period. I I just like thought everything about it was good. Like it was the writing was good. Got main performance of the stepfather. That guy is amazing. Was amazing. Yeah. Also a little social commentary about the American dream and, just like one of the overall best of that kind of movie from that time period. Have you you've seen Stepfather? Yeah, right? I just remember that performance being very creepy, and there's like some really effective scares just of him in a stairwell, like staring at his kids, his kids, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I really like those like highly specific '80s slashers where it's just like just a random like either profession or like social designation, like. They'll have a, a horror movie that's like the ice cream man or like uh Brittany brought up one last week. There was like this TV or last episode that was this TV movie from the seventies called like the plumber. And it was mm-hmm. just about this creepy plumber that came. Oh, over. I've actually, I've seen that. She said it was really it creepy. Is, it is really creepy. And yeah. that, that actually kind of reminded me of the stepfather too. Like just that idea of like, you know, any sort of pedestrian role in society made in this like menacing thing that you can't, get rid of because it's like in your domestic space yeah like the dentist or the dentist is a good one why haven't they they need to make like an accountant movie (laughs) just all these different professions but anyway so that's kind of a summary of what i've been watching lately what about you kind of similar to what you're saying like as far as getting stuck in like a groove and Mm -hmm. like i'm gonna watch a bunch of movies in this category or whatever uh for the past three weeks i've watched almost nothing but these like no budget backyard movies made by this one guy in New England. Uh, his name's Matt Farley, uh, and he's been making these like camcorder movies like in his literal backyard and around like his neighborhood since 1997, and he's still doing it now. Uh, so as you watch them, you kind of watch these kids grow up and go to college and stuff. And they whoa, that's cool. And most of them are these like horror comedy kind of like parodies. Like they're doing like a stepfather style slasher. Except that all of the blood and guts and stuff, he's completely disinterested in. And it's like these like wholesome 
good-natured, harmless pranks that they, like, sort of film for the camera. And then sort of by necessity, the plot gets to the point where there's so many murders that they have to deal with them. It's like this inconvenience. Because <laughs> they're mostly just having fun hanging out. So it's kind of reminding me of, like, American movie, sort yes, of. Yes, yes. And he actually has talked about that film a lot, and he finds it annoying because in American movie, the guy is like struggling and talking about how hard it is and like the frustration of being this artist who like nobody understands. Artist. And he's like, that's bullshit. It's fun. You're just having fun with your friends. Who cares? And he has like this sort of longevity because of that attitude. Like he has these people that you'll see over and over and over again in his movies because he creates this sort of like hangout atmosphere. I mean, do they have like, a place to watch them? Have they been distributed at all? Like they're like all on YouTube. YouTube, okay. <laughs> uh, I think his latest one got on Amazon Prime, but yeah, they're all like free, pretty much. But there was one I really wanted to single out that I found since the last episode. It's called Local Legends. It's one of the few that Farley has directed himself. Usually, his buddy Charles Roxburgh directs them, uh, but he's like, you know, the auteur. Like he's always the star. He like writes and produces them and. Writes all these like novelty songs that like score the soundtrack. Farley is yeah. okay. Uh, Local Legends, Matt Farley directed himself, and it's this kind of black and white. I, I hate to use the comparison, but it's kind of necessary. But like that, like digital era Woody Allen picture, where it's like this self obsessed artist who is uh, navigating these two relationships with women that are flirting with him. One he's interested in, and one he's not, and like just going about his like narcissistic life. Mm-hmm. Except that it's about Matt Farley, and he's playing himself. And because it's such a niche subject, I've been like trying to piece together like what this guy's life might be like, and reading all these different interviews and looking for clues mm-hmm. about like what his whole little empire is. Like one of the most interesting things about him is that he has recorded like twenty thousand novelty songs, and that's how he pays his bills. Is those get him like fractions of pennies every time someone streams them on Spotify and they like add up to like a livable wage. Whoa. And that's how he like Good for him, funds yeah. his movies and like feeds his kids. Uh, <laughs> so local legends is this weird project. Cause it's like an infomercial for all these movies he's made and like where you can find his songs on Spotify. He includes his telephone number and his mailing address in case you want to contact him. And it's this like weird joke about like, the embarrassment of being an outsider artist in the 2010s because we're in the stage right now where anybody can produce a movie or an album or a podcast uh, or a film criticism website Mm -hmm. (laughs) with this like really affordable equipment but because it's so democratized it's so hard to get noticed right it's like oversaturated a little yeah it's just there's just too many voices for you to be heard and this is like about these like minor embarrassments of people being like, why are you still doing this? It's been like 20 years. You're not going to make it like get a real job uh, or like giving him like weird advice. Like, have you ever heard of film festivals? Like you should sum- submit your movies to those. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll look into that film festivals. And he writes it down. He's like, <laughs> I've submitted every movie to film festivals. Nobody gives a shit about what I'm making. But it, it sounds like he has it kind of figured out a little bit. If he's able to support his family and do his art, I mean, isn't that sort of the dream he is in this like weirdly content like comfortable space where he's like getting just enough feedback and success to like continue this like thing that he's been doing for 20 years already and i don't know i find it like oddly heroic even though it's like this like mediocre success that he's working at well and like you were talking about the difference between him and 
the filmmaker from American Movie, I feel like that guy was obsessed with the idea of like making a masterpiece. He's like, I got to make my one great statement as an artist, which is, I think, what a lot of people get tied down in. But it seems like he is more the, like, I guess, Roger Corman. So he's just like, I'm going to keep churning out movie after movie. I'm not concerned about making like my one great thing. I'll just keep doing my thing. And it's like working for him. And he's able to like still be happy doing it. Whereas the guy from American movie just seemed miserable. And like Roger Corman, Matt Farley knows that commercialism is necessary for longevity. So like he'll write a bunch of novelty songs about a meme or like the word gluten, just cause he knows that for like search term optimization, people are going to look for those words. <laughs> And it's the same thing with the movies. Like, uh, he'll put the word Manch Vegas, which is a local joke about Manchester, New England, in the title of a movie, just so people who live in that area, when they're looking up that word, will find his film. And he jokes a bunch in Local Legends about how he hates artists, and he thinks, like, artistic intent and, like, true artist types are, like, really annoying, like, twits, pretty much. Mm. Um, <laughs> and I just find this, like, cavalier, self-obsessed attitude, like really heroic <laughs> mm-hmm. in that no one is paying attention to him and he's still doing it over and over and over again. And he's got this like sort of prolific output, uh, even with like this like tiny amount of feedback he gets. Yeah. I definitely want to check that out as someone that has wanted to make a movie themselves and just getting so hung up on like, Oh, I don't have the money or the budget or like the right equipment. I feel like I would get something out of seeing this guy, just like the bare bones able to like, turn out so much stuff. Uh, Manch Vegas and River Beast are really good as far as like the horror comedies go that he's made. But Local Legends is such a great introduction to his whole little world. Like he spells everything out that he's done and like lets you in on like what it looks like to churn all this stuff out from his like attics and basements uh, that he's lived in. But it's also like really funny. And I think, I don't know, kind of his masterpiece. It's like this really crass commercial, but it's also like his best artistic work at the same time. So it's like a, like kind of a meta commentary on PR while also being a PR vehicle. It's exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. Like he has arguments in the movie with himself. Like he'll be his regular Matt Farley self. And then he'll be having a conversation with a role also played by him. It's just him with his hair slicked back, wearing like a business suit and telling him like, sell, 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 (laughs) (laughs) uh, sell out more. Uh, Use this keyword in your song titles write a hundred happy birthday songs with different people's names in the title so that they'll look it up and find happy birthday James. That's, ge- that's genius. Oh, he's a, it really is. He's a monster and a, a genius. <laughs> so yeah, that's like all I've been watching really is Matt Farley movies. In the spirit of today's episode though, I do want to dial the clock back to something I watched earlier in the year. And this is also like a no budget filmmaking project as well. Today we're going to be talking about like movies from 2017 that we saw after we made our like best of the year list, mm-hmm. like sort of like catching up on the ones that slipped through the cracks. Uh, this is one of my favorite movies of 2018 that I saw like months ago and I still haven't seen a lot of traction about it. Uh, so I just kind of wanted to put it out there. It's, it's called flames. Have you heard of this? I haven't even heard of it. No. Uh, flames is this documentary uh, slash performance art project uh, between these two filmmakers who were a romantic couple about six years ago. It starts off with them in this like young love phase, like, oh, let's document our romance. 
and they end up going on this like grand trip from New York to the Indian Ocean to this like series of islands and they're on this like hot and heavy honeymoon and early in the picture when it's following this phase of their relationship it's like really erratic beautiful shots of just like them documenting their trip and there's all these like tiny snapshots of like fish and uh, just the, the sights and these like weird lights from inside the airplane and just like this like really impassionate art project and then their relationship fails partly because they're documenting it all the time hmm. and they start to realize that they can't tell what's genuine and what's performance to the point where they can't trust each other because they're always on camera and always documenting. Uh, and the documentary that you're watching itself drives a wedge between the two of them. Hmm. And then over the next five years, they continue to detangle what that means through therapy sessions and through looking at old footage in the editing room and filming that. And it's this sort of like weird meta project about like how art and genuine trust and relationships are sort of like opposed to each other. Hmm. And as the movie goes on, it starts to slow down and piece together things as their romance slows down and cools off. And it ends in these sort of like longer arguments about what they did to each other and why they're awful people and why it failed. And it's this really exciting documentary that's like part of this new push, I think, where people are admitting the documentaries are not truthful at all. Because you have to like turn life into like a linear story to make it documentary right, worthy. You're still editing it. It's not uninterrupted in any real sense. And I think this one does a good job of like showing how that can be damaging to the real life subjects. What also I, I was picking up maybe a commentary about, you know, how a lot of couples now with social media feel the need to constantly like they're having videos of their kids or like what they ate for dinner and they're taking pictures at everything. It's like this need to document everything, which I feel like always will sort of take you out of the moment. So it's like how documenting your life can kind of drive this like wedge between you. So I don't know. It, it seems like it could be tied into that a little bit too. Yeah. Like there's this push and pull between like truth and performance and how you can never trust which one is which. Which, even without documentation, like, we were presenting a version of ourselves to each other. Like, you can't mm -hmm. really tell what's genuine. Uh, and I find it really interesting just as an object that hates itself. These two filmmakers working on this project that's, like, ruining their lives. And you're watching the finished product of it. And it, like, literally ends with them just throwing their hands up. Like, fine, you fucking finish it. I'm tired of having the same conversation over and over again with you. Damn. It's really good. It sounds really good, yeah. And because they're both, like you know, conceptual artists and low budget filmmakers. It has this really beautiful eye to it. Uh, it reminded me, especially in the early parts of like, uh, I know this is a movie we didn't like, but like tree of life or, um, 20th century women, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of like immense collection of objects and experiences that sort of amount to this like larger experience. So it's a really beautiful, well edited together movie that then gets to this like weirder truth about performance and trust. And being hmm. genuine in, you know, like you said, in a time where we're documenting everything. I definitely want to check that out. That sounds really good. Yeah, it's called Flames. And I guess, uh, you know, warning up front, in the early parts, there's a lot of, like, unsimulated sex. Because <laughs> they're, like, really documenting everything they do. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, get used to the idea that you will be seeing that up front. But it's so, a really good movie. Okay. Definitely. 
And yeah, and like I said, today we're going to be talking about uh, movies we've seen since 2017 was sort of wrapped up. We did our like top 10 Swamp Flicks as movies of the year. Like what maybe would have clouded that if we had seen these movies in time. Because, you know, we're not getting paid to do this. It takes a while to catch everything. <laughs> Definitely. So, yeah. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. Back at camp. A new batch of ayahuasca is being brewed with leaves and roots from the rainforest. So now this ayahuasca will cook for 12 hours, boiling at a very high temperature. The result is a highly concentrated liquid, which commonly causes diarrhea and vomiting as a side effect. But according to Scott, it also allows people to access their higher selves. And now it's time for our Movie of the Minute segment. Uh, this is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. And I wanted to talk about a movie that I thought was one of the more interesting films from last year that no one really mentioned. Like, uh, It's this like really visually arresting meditative piece that I think should have gotten more attention just for its like cultural commentary and for it's like visual experimentation if nothing mm -hmm. else i saw this in the theater at broad street and i wasn't sure if i liked it i had this kind of like unease about it and then i went back and saw it a second time in the theater because i knew it was going to disappear and i liked it a lot the second time like it just took me a while to get into the groove of it it's called icaros a vision um it's described in this like really lofty way on IMDb that'll give you an idea of like what the movie's like. Uh, a film shaped like a shamanic journey, steeped in a psychoactive brew, exploring fear and destiny in the jungle of the mind. So, <laughs> I think the only other movie we've ever covered kind of like this is uh, Laurie Anderson's Heart of a Dog, where it's like this like meditative piece that's more about visuals and ideas than its narrative, which is kind of slow. This is a movie about the ayahuasca plant and ayahuasca rituals. Basically, this woman who is dying of cancer goes to this shamanic retreat to meet with these shamans in, uh, Peru. in Peru. The name of the place is Anaconda Cosmica, which is a real place. And most of the actors in the film who aren't the visitors, like the people who actually work at the retreat, are real people who work there. And you can kind of feel that in the dialogue. Like, they're not really performances so much as they're, like, sort of, like, staged documentation of what these people do day to day. If you're not aware, ayahuasca is this brew of these, like, two plants that get mixed in a bucket and sort of cooked on high heat for, like, hours and hours. And when you ingest them, they make you shit and puke. And then you trip really hard. And I think the active ingredient is DMT, mm -hmm. which... Um it's a very, very powerful, but natural psychoactive. Is that the one they substance? say like gets released in your brain when you're dying or am I thinking of something else? Yeah. It's also what they think might cause dreams. And yeah. And there's a theory that when you die, your brain releases all the DMT it has left is kind of a defense mechanism. And that's how you get near death experiences where people are seeing loved ones or aliens. And those experiences are very similar to ayahuasca trips from what I've read. And you might expect 
because it's a movie about ayahuasca that it'll be just this like nonstop, like crazy experiment and different visuals and uh, sort of trying to overwhelm you with like filmmaking craft. And the movie's not really like that. It's this sort of quiet reflection where you listen to the sounds of the jungle uh, and the narrator who is also the main character sort of lists these like plants, uh, mm-hmm. different plants in the jungle and like what they are used for medically. And you sort of get into this like weird rhythm trance. Like, well, and there's a timeless quality about it too. Cause when she's doing those narrations about the plants, you don't really know when that's taking place. So that's interesting as well. It just kind of, the mood just sort of floats in this meditative space. And it's also a story about a woman who is confronting her own death. The filmmaker, uh, her name was Leonor Carabaldo. She was a visual artist who traveled to Anaconda Cosmica in Peru herself and was facing dying of cancer. She decided when she was there, she had to document what's going on at this place. So she started directing this practically from her deathbed. And she actually died before the movie was ever released. And the main character seems like a sort of surrogate for her. Mm -hmm. Um, And she goes to sort of confront her own cancer diagnosis. And as she spends more time there and sees that other people are treating this ayahuasca ritual, just like this religious ritual for these local people as sort of like tourist activity. Right. I, I feel like the actor character definitely brings that home. I think he's there just for like a stuttering issue. And he definitely seems like he doesn't take it seriously. He's just there to say he did it kind of. And I think that is something that happens or as I know it's been happening a lot more now that ayahuasca has become more known that people are taking these journeys down there. And I think there's a, you know, there's an angle where it, the shamans and their helpers kind of want the foreigners to come in because they're making money off these people. But I just don't know if the foreigners coming in, like respect it as much as they should or hold it in as some like holy ritual. Or they just see it as like, Ooh, I went down to Peru and tripped out and now I come back home. Yeah. There, there's definitely a, a tourist side to this whole uh, enterprise. And a lot of what she does in the movie is she'll like show the people who run the retreat, like washing out the shit and puke buckets mm. and like preparing meals for these people who are, you know, treating it like this, like colonial tourist uh, attraction. And the big change that happens in the movie is the woman at the center stops trying to accept her own cancer diagnosis and instead tries to help the shaman accept that he is going blind and like what that means for his life. And there's this sort of like exchange where she stops being the receiver of like therapy and she starts this like therapeutic process with the man who's supposed to be helping her. There's also another interesting part to their relationship where, or to his character rather, where they basically tell him like some of the stuff he's doing for these rituals is actually making the blindness worse. So it's like the thing he's doing for spiritual fulfillment also to help these other people is doing harm to his actual body, even though it might be helping his soul or spirit in some way. So I think she kind of makes him realize that he essentially just needs to take care of himself. So I did like that dynamic between 
those two characters. I thought that was really where the heart of the film was that, and just kind of just going along for the ride, this like meditative journey. But I think going into this movie though, I didn't read anything about, I just kind of, I read the synopsis a little bit and then I just looked at the cover art and the title. I was expecting it to be something like altered states, like turn into some sort of horror movie. And I realized very early on, like, no, this is going to be more like a Terrence Malick does ayahuasca deal, which didn't, I wasn't like disappointed at all. I just, um, it took me a while to get in the groove of this movie and get like on its pace. And in that way, it felt like it was similar to actually like tripping (laughs) on something like you kind of just have to you can't fight it and be like oh i wish this was faster pace or this was like the movie i was expecting you just kind of have to go at its pace and when you do it does put you in this really kind of thought-provoking mindset and i think you really start to notice that after a while when you've been in this jungle and you're just looking at all these different plants and there's no score you're just listening to the bugs and the distance Mm -hmm. and stuff and then every now and then they'll interject the visual language with these like flashes of technology. Like she'll try to call back home to her lover with a laptop and on Skype, he's somewhere where there's like police sirens and just like the sounds of the city and mm-hmm. all these like computerized noises that just sound horrible and she can't even stand to hear it. Or like when she's tripping, she'll be having an okay time and then an image of her going to get her MRI scan and her breast cancer shows up. And there's like this like really hideous technological sound that sort of overwhelms the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. And I think in those moments you sort of realize how much you're in a lull with the piece of the area before that. You know what I'm saying? Like you sort of like sink into the jungle and you get in this like meditative state. And then when it's interrupted, you're like, Oh wow. I've just been like ripped out of that. Well, it's funny you bring that up. I, I actually remember when I was watching it, like someone called me, my phone rang and I, it was during one of those scenes where she's talking about the different plants. And yeah, it was just interesting to have that kind of moment interrupted by technology. And it kind of took me out of it. I was like, oh wait, that's right. I'm like sitting in America in my apartment. I feel like it, I would have enjoyed seeing this in the theaters you know, like just in pitch black, like immersed. Yeah. Phone off, no distractions. But one thing I wanted to mention as far as the technology, I, one of my favorite scenes was when everyone's in the middle of their trip and the shaman kind of looks out and everyone has a TV, like an individual TV. And it's all set. They're all set to like a different channel he's like monitoring their visions by watching the TVs of their mind. Right. (laughs) Which isn't explained, but you kind of just catch on to it. I thought that was such a beautiful image for kind of how everyone's on their own signal and has their own movie or TV show playing in their head, like the story of themselves and their life. And yeah, the shaman's just sort of like observing some of the images with the actual trips I thought were very, very cool and well done so weird i was sort of expecting this hyper kinetic almost you know like end of 2001 just sort of like all these lights and colors and it i don't know it wasn't that at all and i just wonder how that compares 
to an actual ayahuasca trip? Is it just you're shot out into the universe and it's just you can't even make out shapes? It's just like colors and or is it something more like what the film portrays? Where there'll be like a smoothie being made and then as the smoothie stops, it gets chunkier. And then when it fully stops, it turns into a human brain that then gets distracted by static. Mm-hmm. Like, what the fuck did that mean? Right. <laughs> uh, or, you know, there's just like these weird disconnected images of like river dolphins swimming. And, like, you just look at their weirdly muscular bodies. There's a lot of like sort of disjointed, unexplained imagery in people's trips, except for the main characters, because that's whose head we're in. And we're seeing her cancer diagnosis is pretty well like explored in those images, I think. When I like that that's how the movie does its like exposition in regards to her diagnosis is just you see the cat scans and all that and you kind of instead of just laying it out in a typical sort of way it's just like you see into her mind and what she's there for i thought there's a lot i liked about it i think because i've only seen it once i think i'm sort of where you were when you were describing how you saw it a second time and then you really liked it just seeing it one time i'm sort of like that like i like it and i appreciate it but i don't know if i'm as like head over heels for it as maybe you are but again i think seeing a second time would help when your expectations are more aligned with what the movie's doing Mm -hmm. which i think might be somewhat on purpose because like we were saying earlier like some people go to these ayahuasca rituals looking to have like a fun time as if you were like going to like smoke a bunch of bong rips or something right right uh but it's more of like a sensory religious experience and the movie itself. I could see wanting to like, Oh, let's get real high and watch Icarus for all the trippy visuals. And it's not that kind of movie no, you'd at all. Probably fall asleep, honestly, because it's, you really have to like focus on it. But no, I, I think that's exactly what it, what my experience was like when I was mentioning how I thought it was going to be a more horror altered States kind of thing. And it ended up, not being that and it took a while for my expectations to kind of fall away and i do think that exactly mirrors the experience of doing a psychedelic especially one as powerful as ayahuasca you can't really project anything onto it you kind of have to go with where it takes you and with the movie and with ayahuasca i think it takes you to a connectedness with like nature so it's not really about getting away from something it's actually feeling more connected and that's also like we were talking about what the characters go through in a way i think when she's the main character is first there she wants to escape this diagnosis she has but later in the film she realizes like no i need to connect with another human being and help them so she like has her own journey in that same way yeah, I, I do like that it has, like, a critical eye to, like, the sort of industry of it and, like, these workers who are, like, being disrespected by having, like, something they revere with this... Turned into a capitalist kind of... Playground. Playground, yeah. Well, the movie is on Amazon Prime, so it's pretty easy to track down now. Like I said, it played in New Orleans for, like, a week and then disappeared. Uh, and I, I think the only, like, end-of-the-year list I saw it on last year was, like, Richard Brody's, which is, like... This, you know, he's this really stuffy intellectual mm-hmm. type. He writes for the New Yorker. Um, so I didn't really see it get a lot of traction or attention. I just wanted, you know, to talk about it a little more because I do f- find it really interesting. 
especially if you liked Laurie Anderson's Heart of a Dog. I think it's on a similar meditative tone. And also, I know we talked about this, knowing the backstory of the fact that the filmmaker actually was going through with the character is going through. I found that out like after I saw it, but that added a lot of like subtext to what's going on. Yeah. This might be a kind of movie where you want to read about it before you see it. So you're like in the right headspace for it. Just like you should research your drugs before you <laughs> take them. <laughs> exactly. Ask Alma to leave. No. Why? Well, if you're going to make her a ghost, go ahead and do it, but please don't let her sit around waiting for you. I'm very fond of her. Oh, you're very fond of her, are you? Well, in <clears throat> that case. No, don't turn it on me. I don't want your cloud on oh, my shut head. Shut up, Zoom. You can shut right up. Don't pick a fight with me. You certainly won't come out alive. I'll go right through you, and it'll be you who ends up on the floor. Understood? And now it's time for our feature conversation. Uh, this is something we do every year. About halfway into the year, we like look back at the best movies from last year we saw after that whole January process where you like do an autopsy on the best movies of the year. <laughs> uh, joining us for this conversation is Cece Chapman. Hey! Cece uh, obviously co-hosts the podcast sometimes and is our sort of official film festival correspondent. And we actually didn't hear you weigh in on what your favorite movies of the year were. So I'm going to let you start off just like, what is a great movie from last year that you've seen this year? Uh, I would say the film that I saw this year that had I seen last year would have been on my last year's best of list definitely would have been Phantom Thread. I saw it in January, kind of late January. It took forever to get to New Orleans. And yeah, it definitely would have been probably my top five. That's why these, like, you know, best of the year lists are kind of arbitrary, because those, like, release dates are really weird. Yeah. Like, this one was released theatrically in 2017 in, like, New York and Chicago and L.A., and then we plebes in the South had to wait for it, like, a full month. I mean, turns out there are some disadvantages to living in New Orleans. (laughs) Just a few. (laughs) Yeah, this is the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie. So as someone that hasn't seen it, is it your favorite Anderson? You know, it might actually be. Really? Like, I mean, I love Boogie Nights and Mm -hmm. thought The Master was okay. But no, I I really love Phantom Thread. And it's not just because it's about a more feminine subject matter about fashion, which I did really appreciate. But it's also much more about just one relationship between two people. I feel like a lot of his other films are either about one person's internal struggle, which kind of gets boring watching it about one person, like in The Master, or it's an ensemble cast where there's just so many people to follow. I feel like he he edited it just right. Also, I think the cinematography in this is particularly lush. I think that the plot itself is told in a really interesting way, because part of it is told linearly, and then part of it's told in an epistolary way, where somebody is describing something to someone else. And I think that gives it the feeling of a mystery, even though it's not really much of a, it's not like a murder mystery or anything like that. But because it's told in this epistolary manner where somebody's going back and telling like a story of their life, it feels like you're building up just like something terrible and sinister and dark, which gives it like a really interesting tension, even mm. though a lot of it's just a normal romantic plot. So is it like a mystery of their relationship dynamic? Kind that's, of, a- that's accurate. That's accurate. Yeah. Okay. Because it, 
you kind of get the feeling out from the outset that it's like this like stuffy drama because mm-hmm. it's like about this London dressmaker in the 1950s and it's got this sort of like classic old Hollywood or even uh, Powell and Pressburger like old British filmmaking and it's even got this like really lush Johnny Greenwood score that like elevates it and makes it seem like this really prestigious like Oscar bait drama almost yeah a lot of strings uh, exactly, yeah, exactly. That's that's the extent of my uh, classical music knowledge. They're using a lot of strings. It's stuffing important. They're they're not using classical. They're using something slightly more modern than that, like chamber or something like that. And music that people in the fifties would have been listening to, but not pop music. Yeah, any, anything pre Beatles to me, I understand as classical <laughs> music because I'm kind of an idiot. Uh, <laughs> but I think what I really appreciated about this movie in particular is that it's pretty much a straight-up comedy for a large portion of it. Yeah, you don't realize it's a comedy because they're British and, you know, they're speaking with British accents, but turns out it's it's a very dark, dark comedy. And it's mm. a comedy about power dynamics in relationships and about how that can be negotiated and renegotiated and, like, change. And, I don't know, things sort of, like, retroactively get turned on their head, how you understand them. Kind of like in Duke of Burgundy, uh, when it's an analysis of a BDSM relationship, and you go through the movie watching it from one partner's point of view, and then the movie switches, and you rewatch the movie from the other part mm. of the partner's point of view, and you realize, oh, I thought this person was being abusive. Oh, I get it. Never mind. This movie is not what I thought it was. It's kind of the same way. My favorite tweet about the movie, I think I think it was Louis Fertel. It might have been um it might have been Kyle Buchanan. Cannon. I was one of them too, but it was like uh it's the story of two tops trying to make each other a bottom. Yeah. Two doms <laughs> trying to make each other a sub. That that's probably more <laughs> accurate, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I really liked the experience of seeing in an audience that was expecting this like heavy drama and Early on in the film, they're like, is it okay to laugh at this? Because, like, Daniel Day-Lewis is really over the top in this film. He's purposely overacting. He's hamming it up. He's chewing scenery. He's, you know, uh, dunking the scenery in milk to soften it up so he can chew on it more. Like, it is so over the top. He's it's... having these, like, blow-ups of just hearing other people eat their breakfast. Like, makes him irrationally angry. Their toast is too loud. <laughs> and doesn't he know he that they don't like that he doesn't like sweets at breakfast? How dare they offer him a croissant? It's so inappropriate of them. At first, when people go through that experience, especially when you're watching this in public, it's like, is it okay for me to laugh at this? Like, it's, it's like a little like tittering. Yeah. And then by the end of the movie, our whole theater was like, not, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was almost like just watching a straightforward comedy. I think Paul Thomas Anderson always kind of has humor in his work. Yeah, definitely. But I felt this one was funnier than a lot of his movies. And yet, it looks so much more prestigious. Mm-hmm. You know, fashion house versus pornography. Like, he, he did his best to package it in, like, this very off-kilter way. Like, it's his funniest movie, but it's also packaged like his most, like, prestigious and dramatic movie. Well, I think Daniel Day-Lewis, too, even though he's renowned as this very serious sort of actor, all of his performances have a level of humor to yeah. even like there will be blood. Yeah. That's I mean, hilarious. Yeah. Another, he another always, PTA joint. I think he always sort of hams it up, but I, I don't know. I haven't seen this yet, but just hearing you describe it, like isn't this supposed to be his last movie. He said he was retiring to become a dressmaker. Yeah. No, Daniel day Lewis is now making dresses for his wife and they are gorgeous Re- dresses. He's actually, no, he's actually making dresses now. What? And I don't want to downplay that aspect of the movie either. Like, 
it is a, just a beautiful movie because oh God, it's about those, fashion. Those dresses. Mm. Like, me and Brandon disagreed on which dresses we liked the most. There was a couple <laughs> that I thought were really cool that he thought were hideous. And obviously, it's very 1950s posh fashion. It's not chic, though, because he makes very clear he hates the word chic. Chic is an ugly, small French word, and nobody should ever use it to describe clothing. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's just the fabric, the quality of it, the handmade lace, stuff that... I will never experience as a normal American person. I would have had to have been a very wealthy European at a very specific time period to ever like touch stuff like this. Mm. And so like getting to see like the way a very high quality satin uh, or silk fabric rustles. I wonder, did the movie influence him to go into this or I probably researched it. He had to, I mean, he's method, so he had to learn how to make dresses what and then he just like and then he was like i like making dresses for women they (laughs) it's nice so he didn't sew most of it though that was one thing they pointed out like in couture he makes the initial dress and the pattern but then after that he hands it off to Mm. people to hand stitch everything like yeah i like that the movie's like really honest about the labor that goes into it like he as reynolds woodcock which is like this sort of like rupert pupkin (laughs) norman bates kind of name like you just hear it and it becomes iconic. He gets all the credit as Reynolds Woodcock and the House of Woodcock. It's all under his name, but there's this whole army of women that do like all the actual labor of like constructing the dresses. Yeah, nothing in this case is machine sewn. Everything is hand stitched. So it takes like millions of hours of labor to put out a line. And his sister, Cyril, who's played by Leslie Manville in the movie. Oh, so good. Yeah. Just as much as Vicky Creeps is like love interest, like she is a, has her hand in the game as like a power player as well. Uh, and this is a sort of like political struggle on top of the sort of kinky romance one. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like a, a love triangle, except like Vicky does not want to sleep with either of them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, she's she needs to establish to the love interest that she is the dominant female in his life. And she's also establishing to her brother, hey, you can't do this without me. Don't ever take me for granted. That kind mm. of thing. It's also unclear how much sex he wants to have because he calls himself an incurable confirmed bachelor which has connotations to it historically yeah, that was old code back in the day yeah so but there's no answers there because there's something much weirder going on with the romance in the movie can't really say much more than that no, <laughs> yeah i really like that movie as well i think you were much higher on it than i was even well, uh, i think i was too yeah, yeah definitely would have been in, in in my top <laughs> top uh speaking of that exact scenario um that movie, Wonderstruck, directed by Todd Haynes, I was really high on. That would have been in my top five for the year as well. Did you see Wonderstruck? Mm-hmm. No, I do like Todd Haynes, so I haven't kept up with him. He though. made a kid's movie. You know, our poster boy for, you know, new queer film in the 90s is now making, like, kids' movies, but great kids' movies, movies kids need to see. Is it animated or is it, like, a live action? It's live action, and it's split between the 20s and the 70s, and it's about two deaf children in those two different time frames one of them since it's in the 20s is tied to like old new york filmmaking like silent filmmaking from that time mm-hmm. uh and it's from the source material is the same author as hugo that's uh, brian selznick yeah which you know the scorsese version of that movie had a lot to do with like silent filmmaking and the 70s is uh more like glam rock era glam rock and funk new york it's got this like grimier like almost early pornography kind of feel to it. It's the orange like filter on everything. And I feel like Todd Haynes has this sort of like split career right now 
where like he gets this high praise for these movies like Carol and Far From Heaven that are these like sort of like Douglas Sirk throwback movies that are like very much so they look like Phantom Thread like they're really yeah. like impeccably I thought Carol looked a lot like or Phantom Thread looked a lot like Carol but I like those movies I just don't find them as interesting as his more experimental stuff I thought Wonderstruck was a lot more in line with like Velvet Goldmine mm-hmm. where it's this sprawling mess that sort of reaches across all these different timelines and art forms and tries to bring all these different multimedia influences together in this like one picture. And I find that ambition like so much more distinct. Where like Carol's a really good movie, but I could see probably five to ten other directors who could have pulled that movie off. Yeah. Where like Wonderstruck feels like very distinct to Todd Haynes. Yeah. And what Brandon doesn't mention in the experimental aspect of it is that the way the movie's split between the two timelines, the 1920s half is black and white and silent. And the lead is played by Millicent Simmons, who he also recently saw in A Quiet, the Quiet Place. Place. Oh, okay. Um, so he actually, you know, cast a deaf actress. So this was actually her first role, and then she got in A Quiet Place. Hmm. Um, and the kid in the 1970s, he's a hearing actor, uh, but it makes a little more sense for his character because he, he became deaf more recently as, like, you know, a kid. Uh, it happens mm. during the film, whereas she has congenital deafness. Um, so that's great that uh, he actually cast her for that. And so it's really great being able to watch the two halves of the film, just like the Brian Selznick books. will have large blocks of text and then several pages of illustration and then large blocks of text and then several pages of illustration that move the plot forward. This feels the same way where the boy's part in the 1970s is the text of the book and the silent part in the 1920s is the illustrated part Hmm. and the mystery of the movie is how these two stories are connected because the kids seem to be on this like shared track to like the same destiny they keep going to these same like bookstores or like uh, the museum of natural history and they keep like following the same path as they've like run away from home and they're navigating new york on their own which in the 20s and in the 70s is a completely different new york city so that has its own you know different challenges and then there's this giant set piece at this sprawling miniature of New York City where it's all explained to you in one go in this like sort of stop motion catharsis that I just find to be so fucking beautiful like just the world this movie builds out of like libraries bookstores museums miniatures it's like the my perfect realm like there's things that people collect there's vinyl (laughs) records there's old books and postcards. There's miniature cityscapes. Like, it's everything Brandon likes <laughs> all in one movie. And it's also about movies, which Brandon, as we all know, really likes. And this movie did not get a great critical reception. It was kind of like lambasted for being messy, which yeah. I found to be like the most exciting part of it. Uh, John Waters positively reviewed it. He said, uh, take your kids to see this movie, and if they don't like it, then they're stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Which a lot of people were like, kids aren't going to like this movie. It's too complicated. It's too hard. And John Waters is like, yeah, no, it it is too hard for stupid kids. So, you know, there's that. (laughs) It also reminded me of the Get Down, that uh, Laws Berman show, because it's got the uh, late 70s New York look to it, too. Yeah, very much so. Visually, the 70s part looked a lot like there was this... It was great vision of New York, because it's, you know a much more multi-ethnic and accurate version of New York City, but then at the same time, like, 
public officials have stopped caring. So like every other building has been set on fire for like insurance money and the subway doesn't work <laughs> anymore. Uh, so it's like this really nasty, gross New York City. And part of it is actually, they set the movie during like real historical events. So this is the 1970s of the brownouts and blackouts mm-hmm. and rioting. <laughs> so it's like not a nice New York. This is a dirty, filthy New York. But the 19, like 20s New York, you know, has a much like cuter kind of aspect but it was also like leading up to like the world war so like fascism is creeping in and people are not friendly and they're kind of xenophobic and if you like get bumped on the street people will just shove you out of the way and um, the people's attitude towards having a deaf child is a lot more nasty. harsh yeah yeah they're like gross and i will say just the aspect of like the deafness and like what you hear in the soundtrack i think this movie at, at the very least like I, I don't need people to love it as much as i do but I think this one and Mother from last year should have gotten more recognition for sound design and sound mm-hmm. editing. It's this immersive sound experience that I wish I had seen in the theater, but it didn't last very long, so we missed it. Yeah, it's one of the frustrating things about film about the deaf experience because it can't, it doesn't capture it. Most films don't make an attempt to capture it because they use sound so heavily. Like, even A Quiet Place had a score, <laughs> and so much of it's told from you know the daughter's point of view, and her point of view is, you know, a buzz in the background. Well, it was also like used design. kind of as a gimmick, too, yeah. where long periods of silence, just so the jump scare has that yeah. much more impact. But even A Quiet Place didn't really have long periods of silence. If you go back and rewatch it, there's still a score. They right. still have a string score in the background. It's soft. They still put a score in. And that's a movie about silence. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas this one actually did, like, capture, like what it might feel like to us a hearing audience if we were deaf well, and they, I think they it make makes, that ambitious like try and jump for us well i think it makes people uncomfortable yeah honestly. but that's why they put a score in a, a quiet place right because they were like it was too uncomfortable for people and you could hear other movies in the theater like you could hear the other movies playing so like kind of ruins the experience and wonderstruck admittedly does have music it's yeah. just like when you're in the character's head you're experiencing what they hear uh, and depending on the child, they have a different range of hearing. Like, yeah. she's completely silent, and he has this, like, really muffled thing because of an injury. Uh, and then it'll cut out and show the sounds of the city. Uh, so you hear this, like, funk beat in this in the 70s part with, like, just, like, street noise and people talking and chattering and stuff. So it, it's really all over the place and all mixed together in this, like, really interesting way. Yeah. It gives, it gives a much more dynamic and full range of experience, I feel like, than a lot of media. Yeah, we need more... Smart movies for kids. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> what you got, James? Well, speaking of kids' movies, this was on your top ten. Like I was telling y'all recently, uh, I've been on this big kids' movie thing the past couple weeks, and so I finally got around to seeing My Life as Zucchini. I don't know why I like. I didn't dismiss it. I just kind of avoided seeing it. I was like, oh, it's gonna be a sweet tearjerker kid movie i know how that goes and then within like honestly the first scene where his mom is drinking beer in front of the tv and he accidentally kills her i was like oh shit all right i'm already starting to cry you know it's about these kids that aren't wanted they're in this like foster home and they kind of all band together and take care of each other and it you know kind of reminded me of like short term 12 and some other movies that deal with that same topic, but in this, the same way that like Paddington has this like just really sweet like soul about it. This movie was the same way where I just like 
it just feels like someone just giving you a hug at the end of a long day. And it's so perfect in the sense, it's like so short and sweet and there's nothing that I would take or add from it. It's like such a beautiful movie with such a like good message that kids need to hear. You would almost expect because it's stop motion animation for it to be like really cutesy. But there are moments where like lingers, like the kids will see someone with like a traditional family while they're all out on a trip as an orphanage together. And it just like lingers on their like faces as they observe some other kid having like a normal life. Yeah, and the stop motion was so good. Like there was just something in the kids eyes. It really resonated. Like they really felt like children. But also in that scene, you're talking about the little girl looks after him. There was like something he wanted. What was like it? Snow goggles? Yeah, yeah the goggles. He, he's and, playing around with a normal kid. Yeah. And the mother thought he was trying to steal her daughter's like snow goggles. He's like, I just thought they were cool because they're red. Yeah, and then she like gives it to him and she's walking away. It's like even the bully too. I initially thought like, oh, okay, this guy's going to be the antagonist. Like that's usually the case with these movies. And by the end, he'll come around. But pretty much like from the get go. Yeah, he was a bully at the very beginning when he was first meeting Zucchini. Um but then very early on, he showed like he had a heart. Well, he's like protecting to... the other kids. Like right. he's like trying to get a good bead on who this newcomer is to protect the other kids that are already there to make sure that he's not going to hurt them. Yeah. Cause like some of the kids have been like physically abused by other kids or adults. Like, so it's like his job. He feels like to like mm-hmm. bully the new kid into submission and be like, you cannot touch a single other kid. Do not even try it. Yeah. And he eventually Which... is the hero. Yeah, um, no, like all the kids are given like a, a quick moment to shine. Even the ones that aren't the main protagonists, they all get a backstory. They all get like a certain amount of catharsis, uh, which I thought was really sweet. With exception of like a few of the parents, there's no real villains in the movie. Like the antagonist is just like life sucks. Yeah, the situation yeah. of it. I mean, yeah, there is the one uh, girl's the, aunt yeah. or whatever. She's pretty awful. But, you know. She's barely in the movie, though. Yeah, and she like ends up like losing anyway so yeah it's really just kind of a simple message that you know yeah life sucks sometimes and it can feel like no one wants you but as long as you treat each other with kindness and look out for each other you're never going to be alone just such a basic message that kids really need to hear told in like the most simple perfect way yeah i I definitely love this movie and it's, it's worth noting too that the um woman who wrote it uh celine skiyama she also wrote and directed girlhood which we've talked about on the show before oh did she yeah. oh i didn't even know that awesome yeah. she's really great like i feel like girlhood's a really great film for teenagers to watch i feel like this is a great film for children to watch i feel like some people might try and make the argument that because death and sexual abuse and physical abuse are featured heavily in the plot mm-hmm. of this that it's not appropriate for children but it's like these things happen, happen. to children like children need to see it in a way that's appropriate for them. Just like, you know, when Mr. Rogers, you know, mm-hmm. when... when uh, Daniel the Tiger? Daniel Striped Tiger asks, what's assassination? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's dark, but, you know... Well, and also, if it doesn't happen to you, you might have a friend yeah. that it happens to, and then, like the movie says, you just got to take care of each other. I will say I felt a little bad for the kids who saw it with us at Britannia at French Film Fest, because it was in subtitles. Yeah. They were, like, not... 
having no. it. <laughs> they they were there more to see uh, stuff like what's what's the cowboy? Um, a town called Panic. Yeah, a town called Panic type stuff. That's mm-hmm. what they were used to because they're uptown kids who go to the French school. <laughs> so you know they're fancy kids, anyways. When they watch cartoons, they watch a town called Panic. But still, like watching this in subtitles would be like a little difficult. Uh, I feel like if an English speaking child under the age of ten was watching it, it might be better to watch a sub dubbed version. Um, but still. Very appropriate for children, despite the extremely dark subject Definitely. matter. Definitely. It is a lot more melancholic than Town Called Panic, which is just yeah. complete it's chaos. Zany, chaos. Yeah. <laughs> it's the kind of stuff Mr. Rogers would hate. Well, uh, what was your next one, Cece? Uh, I think uh, the next one I want to talk about is Logan Lucky. We were recently watching all of the Ocean's 8 movies to get ready for our previous podcast where Brandon and Brittany discussed all of the heist movies um, so they could catch up with this year's Ocean It's 8. And even though it is not in the oceans, over, <laughs> uh, Logan Lucky was also made by Soderbergh. And it's also very much, you know, a heist movie. Although this one, instead of like these kind of suave, worldly, uh, international, like, robbers uh logan lucky takes place here in the south it takes place very much in a blue collar uh sort of environment and it you know it kind of discusses the financial uh repercussions of the 2009 financial crisis a lot like magic mike a lot like magic mike also soderbergh uh (laughs) and just talking about kind of this like white existential despair as industry in the south dries up and like how how do you make it in the world now like you worked your whole life doing one type of job and now suddenly that's gone like do you take it out on people who look different from you do you take it out on the rich Mm -hmm. um this one obviously moves in a very constructive uh direction where they're like no eat the rich like (laughs) they're our true enemies which of course i appreciate rob them blind (laughs) i mean they're stealing from nascar too which is like something they love but also something they know is insured and will get their money back. So it's kind of like almost like a harmless crime that they're pulling off. Uh, Whereas in like Ocean's Eleven, they're almost doing it because they're bored. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because, you know, they're suave and international and they get to have that certain amount of like slouchness about it. Whereas, you know, when you make it about real people, Mm -hmm. there's a certain amount of desperation. (laughs) Ocean's feels more like about ego Kind of just to show, like, we can. I'm the best. Do it. And sometimes to show off in front of your ex-lover's new husbands, which is kind of a lame reason to steal <laughs> from all these casinos. Also, because Soderbergh is um, interested in celebrity and, like, meta-commentary on, like, the, the nature of the movies he's making, the heist in the film, once it's pulled off, is described on the news broadcast as Ocean 7-Eleven. So he was like almost making the joke before reviewers could get there, which I thought was really funny. Haha, <laughs> <laughs> I already thought of every good pun headline. <laughs> and this movie is a comedy. Like all that economic anxiety drives like the emotional heart of it, especially Channing Tatum's character struggling to be this dad who has to like work his body into the ground just to be able to see his daughter. Yeah, no, like the opening scene where he's working on a car with his daughter with his trailer and then his trailer has the little like lean-to roof off of it. I've lived in that exact trailer. <laughs> like, <laughs> I like know that. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I've sat there working on cars. <laughs> like, But at the same time, this is like a really over-the-top character comedy as well. Yeah, no, like they're, they gave the criticism that everybody was a caricature, although those people felt very real to me. They felt like several real people rolled into one real person. <laughs> they were like hyper real mm-hmm. uh, in a way. 
And Soderbergh has strong ties to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Yeah, he's from here. Well, his dad was a college professor, though, so like he grew up in Baton Rouge slightly different than some of us grew up like in rural He was like Louisiana. the dean of LSU or something ridiculous like that. Was he the dean? I think so. Of one wow. of the schools. Maybe dean of one of the schools. I yeah. don't know. Still. But yeah. I think his dad was an anthropologist, um, if I recall, which also makes sense that he's able to look at people across like different like socioeconomic classes and like analyze them as though they're like ethnic groups like he's like tr- describing them almost like from like this like anthropological like film sort of way like mm-hmm. ah yes and now we look at the desperate white trash <laughs> of south carolina they love nascar they hate the rich <laughs> but they're good people i love him when he's having fun though and this is him in fun mode like, yeah. I just started getting into Soderbergh's movies in the past year because we did um, Schizopolis as a movie of the month. And that one is literally just him running around Baton Rouge with, like, an 18-millimeter camcorder, 8-millimeter camcorder, just, like, having fun and staging these, like, weird pranks and building them in this, like, weird meta narrative. Yeah, he doesn't... I don't think he gets enough respect for, like, his experimentation. He's always pushing it to some other place i mean even unsane this year uh, right filmed on a iphone and looks insane and it was awesome <laughs> yeah it's really good i don't know i feel like he takes chances a lot and most of the time it works out well i feel like maybe people don't give him credit for being as experimental as he is because he alternates he'll do like one kind of mainstream film and then one experimental film and then one totally. kind of mainstream film and then one ex- experimental film so like people know him for oceans people know him for the first magic mic people know him for you know, sex lies and videotape. Sex lies and videotape. Uh, Aaron Brockovich, traffic. Aaron, Aaron Bro- yeah, Aaron Brockovich. <laughs> like his his career kind of like does weird things. So you can only look at his experimental stuff, or you can only look at his mainstream stuff, and it's almost like two different people made them. Even within the Oceans franchise, yeah, uh, Oceans some- Eleven and Oceans Thirteen, not very interesting to me. Like they're sort of straightforward movies, but Oceans Twelve is fucking weird. It's like him doing that Schizopolis running around having fun and doing all these like weird setups and just like following his instincts from shot to shot. Uh, but on this like multi-million dollar budget and just like with all these celebrities around. So <laughs> he can even throw around money and have fun on a big budget level. But yeah, which I feel like a lot of directors can't do like they can have fun on a small budget. The second you give them a big budget, they're like, Oh, well I guess I better make book a Henry. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <Damn it. laughs> yeah. I, I really like Logan lucky a lot. It's like super charming. Uh, the cast is really good. I really come around to Channing Tatum, dude. But he's so, how could you ever be against him? I don't. Well, it just took me. It was pretty much Magic Mike, where I was like, "All right, this guy." I had seen him in some stuff before that, where I don't know. I, I liked guess, it. I yeah, just wasn't like a Magic huge Mike. Fan. Really was the first thing I ever really paid attention to him, and I didn't have an opinion about him beforehand because I didn't right. notice who he was. But now I'm like, "Oh, Channing Tatum's in it. Hell yeah, I'm gonna yeah. check that out." <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, he has a beautiful body. Sure, but also he's a very weird brain. Yeah. Weird brain on that guy. Desperate to play uh, Gambit. Why don't we just let him play Gambit? (laughs) Well, speaking of like Schizopolis style experimentation and shifting forms every couple minutes, uh, one of my favorite movies from last year was Faces Places uh, from Agnes Varda, which a lot like Phantom Thread did not make it here until like way later. Way later. We saw it during the New Orleans Film Fest. Which is like February. February. Yeah. Um, and then it appeared on Netflix not long after that. Um, and Agnes Varda was nominated for Best Documentary Film at the Oscars and got a 
think Lifetime Achievement Award yeah. for directing because she's been making movies since the French New Wave and actually taught a lot of those directors how to operate a camera and how to make a film. She was already a professional photographer at that mm. point, so she taught you know uh, Godard how to use a camera. <laughs> wow. He did not know how to use a camera until she taught him. And yet he gets all these accolades and she still has not won an Oscar. And had she won this year, she would have been the oldest person to win an Oscar. What um, has she done outside of Faces Places? Uh, she did uh, Cleo from 5 to 7, which is this 1960s French New Wave film about this woman who... It takes place from 5 to 7 p.m. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's waiting to find out the results of a cancer biopsy. And just her life during those two hours. She... Yeah, I just don't know if I've seen any of her work. She also made a movie called uh, Vagabond. It's called Vagabond here in the United States. Um, in French, I think it's like without uh, law or home, uh, which doesn't make sense to us. <laughs> and they did a uh, retrospective of her work at the New Orleans French Film Fest this year. So we saw Faces Places, Le Bonheur, mm-hmm. uh, which, which it the happiness. happiness. <laughs> And then also Gleaners and I, which was my favorite of the three. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like this like a weirdly punk version of Faces Places. It's from 2002. And it's like Agnes Varda hanging out with all these like crust punks and <laughs> rapping about trash. And Faces Places, though, was the first movie I'd ever seen from her uh, myself. So I was like way behind the curve on that as well. Embarrassingly so, because she's like a really important filmmaker, but it's just not someone who's gotten like her critical due at least not in recent years until like the past year or so. Like, I feel like this is kind of like a rejuvenating, like everyone being forced to like, remember how important she is and how important she was and like make up for lost time. And like lauding her as one of the greats. Yeah. And a lot of the French Mm. new wave, the stuff that we know is the right bank French new wave, which is considered the more conservative French new wave. That was more concerned with narrative plot uh, and even though they were trying to like abolish the old French movie and do something new, they were still like really traditional. Where she was part of the Left Bank, uh, along with Chris Marker, uh, who is one of my favorite filmmakers. He did Le Jeté and Sans Soleil. Uh, Le Jeté is uh, famously the movie that's made all with still photographs, that is the inspiration for 12 Monkeys. Hmm. And then. He also made Sans Soleil, which is this weird documentary style film. It's not really documentary. It's more like a visual diary or an essay where he's talking about globalization and culture. And it's interspersed between um, might be the Canary Islands and then Japan and a couple other places where it's just like shots of daily life. And he's talking about their daily life and what that kind of means to him. And it's this very non-documentary style documentary because it's about him. It's not really about what he's showing. Uh, And... I feel like Gleaners and I and Faces Places is also in that same documentary style. Hmm. And I feel like the left bank French New Wave does not get the same level of critical acclaim that the right bank did. And what's good about the Faces Places is it is a great introduction to her as like a multimedia artist Mm -hmm. because it mixes in photography, documentary filmmaking. There's these like staged comedic bits. That's like her doing her like narrative filmmaking And it's also in line with what she does in general, which is this like surface of these sort of frivolous comedy bits and like things about kittens and things that don't seem inherently political at first. And then once you get under that surface, there's this like deep radical politics well of just like these really big ideas. And the idea of this project is she is sort of mentoring this man, J.R., who's a modern uh, muralist who takes these giant photographs and wheat pastes them on the sides of buildings. 
Um, and it's portraits of like factory workers and farmers and waitresses and like workers, shipping dock unions even, and sort of putting the face of the labor on the outside of the building so that you have to sort of confront who these people are. And it fills them with immense pride and sort of like puts like the people who make these industries work as part of the industry, you know, like it makes them visible to the public. So at first it seems like this kind of like almost like wholesome graffiti project where they're just like, Oh, this is this community art project where everyone collaborates and gets their portrait taken. And then you sort of see like what that has to do with like labor politics and like union organizing and, and all these different uh, like larger political ideas that you wouldn't really give the movie credit for up front because it seems kind of cutesy. Yeah, she's always been very coy about her politics. Like, you can tell once you watch her, like, three or four of her films, you can tell that she is a deep Marxist feminist. Uh, that, like, she comes very much from that side, but she will never, like, really outwardly say that in anything. Like, I think previously when people tried to ask her if she was a feminist, like, she would, like, be like, well, no, maybe, no. <laughs> I think all people are important. But then, like, she makes films like Le Bonheur, uh, Happiness, where... There is this happy couple, they have two perfect children, they have this perfect life, and then the husband falls in love with another woman, and he insists he can have both things. And then his first wife dies mysteriously, and then he marries the second one, and then the cycle starts over. And mm. it seems very idyllic. It seems very like, oh, polyamory, it can work. And then when you really like watch the film you realize like she is actually saying something about like the labor of women and how it's taken for granted and the only reason why he could even have a second affair is because she made his life perfect for him so that he could have that like if mm -hmm. she wasn't there to take care of the kids and to keep everything perfect he couldn't have had that affair he wouldn't have had time and she made that one when she was young and now she's like 90 years old and still like punk as fuck and doing all these like radical movies with this like sort of like sheen of just I don't want to say frivolous entertainment, but she tries though digestible entertainment. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if we could say that Vagabond is as happy. Vagabond uh, is a narrative film where it starts with a young uh, drifter, female drifter. Uh, she dies of exposure, and like you see that first, and then it goes back over the events leading up to her dying, like just like cold and alone. So like not all of her films feel that way, but a lot of her films, she will try and be a little more coy about like the surface politics. And I think Faces Places is a good start. Uh, if you, It seems like, oh, it's her most recent film. She's been making movies since the 60s. Like, it doesn't seem like that would be the place to start. But it really is kind of like an overview of her career. Yeah, because it's partially a documentary about her career. And so and in the course of mentoring, she's like, oh, yes, this time I, you know, was here uh, on the coast of Brittany taking photos of one of my friends. Oh, by the way, he's a photographer, too. You might know him. And like she then she talks about that guy and then they go back and look at both of their work. So I think it's a great place to start, like rather than go chronologically with her French New Wave narrative stuff and then her later 80s stuff and then her documentaries. Like, I think this is a great. It's such a shame to not have heard about her because it sounds like it totally is something that. I would be into, but I've for some reason kept up with Godard, even though I don't enjoy his later movies. I don't think they're very good. And it seems like she's actually progressed as an artist where like, I don't know, we still hold Godard in some high regard, but it, his like career has sort of been on the decline. And it just, I know you do the like 52 movies by women thing. I feel like that's why it's so important because there's all these, female directors that for various reasons we just 
haven't heard of. Yeah, you have to like pay attention to who you're consuming, you know, and like yeah. actually go out of your way to make sure you're like giving the few women who've been able to finance movies like their due time because <laughs> there's like even more voices who aren't getting the funding because no one's watching their movies because they're not getting pushed as hard. Yeah, I feel like also a lot of her career was also overshadowed by her husband because she was married to Jacques Demy who made Umbrellas of Cherbourg and Two Young Girls of Rochefort, um, oh, okay. which are both amazing. Uh, yeah, James and, watched uh, Umbrellas I with lo- me. I love those, yeah. both those, yeah. Yeah, so so that was her husband, which was funny because last year's uh, New Orleans French Film Fest did an overview of his work, and I'd never seen any of his work because a lot of people kind of dismissed his work, you know, for a long time as being like fluffy little musicals. And, oh, he should have just stuck to like narrative plot. It's like, no, musicals are a great way to tell stories sometimes. Yeah. Uh, Not for everything, but. And so like, yeah, she was a big champion of his work, but she also tried to keep her career as separate from his as possible. Uh, And then he died relatively young, so. And you can see in the symmetry of her framing and in like the the color voids of her backgrounds, like that they had similar sensibilities to. Mm -hmm. Uh, so if you like his work visually, she has a touch of it as well. But yeah, especially in her earlier stuff. Yeah, and then she goes off on these like really weird tangents with the documentaries that I really appreciate, especially yeah. Cleaners and Eyes masterpiece. Yeah. What else, James? What you got? The other one I wanted to talk about was probably my favorite soundtrack or s- score from last year was Good Time. Oh yeah. And it was on my mind recently because I can never pronounce. Onothrix Point Never? Onothrix... That's probably not accurate. Onothrix Point Never. Sure. We'll just go with that. (laughs) Anyway, he has like a new album that just came out, Age Of, that is really weird and I think like his best thing yet. And I've been listening to that and that kind of made me want to go back and watch Good Time again for the score. And it is... The score is so damn good in that movie. Even yeah. just in like the intro, like the first few minutes, it's just like this punishing wash of synths as you're watching this like bank robbery. Yeah, it's like synths that feel really organic, though it just has a way of creating sound out of what should be like very cold sort of synthesizers and computers and field recordings and making it into something that feels like warm and organic. I love that aspect of this movie. I also kind of, like we were talking about with Channing Tatum, Robert Pattinson, he's like in my top three actors of the moment. Pretty much in the same way if I see he's in something, I'm going to watch it. There's so many actors from Twilight that have like gone on to these like incredible artistic Kristen Stewart too. Like what? It's really impressive like how they're using that money to like make more interesting art projects. The the music with, with his performance and... Visually, I thought this was one of the more exciting movies I saw last year with the use of close-ups and really bright colors and everything kind of popped that was on the screen. And then just the plot itself, just a simple extended chase scene. Yeah, I I know this was, I think this was in your top 10. My top 10 last year, yeah. Huge fan of this and it it would have definitely cracked my top 10 as well did you see this one i haven't so yeah i have nothing to contribute to this because i still <laughs> oh, no, haven't I, seen it i've seen the opening scene i think like or one of the opening scenes where they're in the bathroom trying to wash the ink off yeah that's oh, the yeah. only scene i've seen that and that's a great that actually is one of the best scenes in the movie so you saw, you saw a good one 
and it, on top of all like the you know like the grimy version of drive that it is with like these like synths and like That's this like crime yeah. picture thrills uh, it's also got this like really interesting commentary about privilege because like robert pattinson's at the bottom of the food chain is this like sort of grubby criminal with this like brother with a um, mental handicap that he's like trying to take care of and ruining his life in the process but also he uses what little privilege he has as like a white man to step on people even lower on the rung than him right he pretty much manipulates every single person he comes into contact with and in kind of a remarkable way like he's so good at doing it uh, but he's like He's a con man. He's a despicable, but, despicable man. But the movie does have like a heart too with his relationship with his brother, which really comes into play like the end when you see like how close their bond was and like is he better off his brother being prison or you know I think so. <laughs> I mean, judging by what he had his brother doing in the first scene of the movie. Uh, yeah, his brother's better off with him in jail. But then when he, he get, you know, when he gets locked up, his brother's so sad, though. He was like his only friend. I, but anyway, there there is like more heart to it than it sounds like. But And there are it, also a few despicable acts in the film that I had to like cover my mouth with my hands in the theater. Like total, I, was, I was aghast yeah. at some of the low places he stoops in the film. Yeah, but it, it's just like really fun sort of like you said grimy urban decay sort of thing but with this beautiful score by Anathronk's point never i think that's like the main thing to really watch for in this movie i get one more um it's another like visually arresting film kind of like good time but it's animated uh we just watched this on netflix recently uh because it popped up at Broad Theater for like a week, like so many movies we've talked about today, and then uh, disappeared and didn't show up even for streaming until this year. Yeah, no, it took a really long time to get to streaming. And this is the uh, feature film debut of Dash Shaw, who is a graphic artist who usually has his comics printed through Fantagraphics. Yeah, I knew him through Fantagraphics. He does this really interesting thing in his debut movie. It's, it's called My Entire High School Sinking into the Sea. <laughs> it's got this sort of laid back teen juvenile humor to it where these kids are sort of like winging it and shrugging their way through a crisis. And the crisis is the titular one where their high school detaches from the hillside it's on. Oh, that is a literal. And yeah, no. sinks okay. into the sea <laughs> yeah. like the Titanic. Uh, so these like teens have to navigate their way to freedom on outside of the school to they get to rescued. Get to the roof. Yeah. Oh, if they I get lo- to the roof, they can get rescued. I love that. So you have this like really over the top scenario and these kids sort of like shrugging their way through it. Like, oh, whatever. Look at that. Now I'm going to stay on this floor because all my friends are on this floor. They're like, this floor is sinking. You're We're in shark infested waters. We have to climb. They're like, not nah, cool. Yeah, and there's all these like visions of hell of like, you know, miniature flesh eating sharks. Yeah, they're and, tiny like, little sharks and everyone keeps getting eaten by them. <laughs> it's like, what? Like they're like this big. And, uh, you know, libraries on fire. Uh, A bus somehow crashes into the middle of the school, several stories up after it falls into the sea. I don't understand how that one happened. Wait, but... is this in California or? Yeah, it's set in California. Okay. Yeah, that's not really stated. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, there's like these hierarchies of cults where like popularity makes you like a cult leader and everyone worships you. So there's all this chaos, but the the kids are kind of like shrugging and like still flirting with each other and just sort of having this like nonchalant time about it. Uh, the main character is voiced by uh, Jason Schwartzman. 
Yeah, and he plays this sort of like overachieving jerk who works in the school newspaper. So it's pretty much like an unofficial sequel to Rushmore. It feels feels exactly like the beginning Mm. feels exactly like Rushmore. Like he's upset because his co-writer who has been writing all of his articles for him because he actually doesn't write any of his own stuff uh, is now writing independently and he's got a girlfriend. And that's just a true betrayal of the artistic integrity of the newspaper. It's like very Rushmore. (laughs) Does Jason Schwartzman always play a writer? I feel like he plays a lot of writers like nine times out of ten he's playing a writer he probably writes in real life too <laughs> I I, he did, didn't he write the detective show uh bored to death probably yeah, so. i think he wrote part of that yeah um i know he's a, a, at least a producer on that along with him too there's like maya rudolph reggie watts lena dunham and kind of the mvp uh susan sarandon voices this like muscly lunch lady who like is there, like, brute force to help them break through all these walls and stuff? <laughs> oh, and John Cameron Mitchell plays uh, the high school jock. But what's interesting about the movie isn't even the plot. No. It's Dash Shaw's visual style, which is this insanely overly complex mixture of multimedia approaches to animation where it's layered all these, like, almost rudimentary tact- tactics. So you have, like, you know, crayon fields filled in or, like, Almost looked like notebook doodles, uh, photographs. Um, what was her name? Lottie Retnier, whoever did uh, yeah, Prince Ahmed. Yeah, yeah. So it's like a paper, paper cutouts on top of all these layers, and it's such a labor-intensive, like hands-on work that he does. But it amounts to this like really overwhelming style where I felt like my eyes were bleeding watching the film. It it hurt to watch. It's like a Dan Deacon's. Um, what was that called? The short. The ultimate reality. Yeah, it, it was like Dan Deacon's ultimate reality. Like the layering of images and how bright it was, and ha- they actually warn you at the beginning that it is um, photosensitive. Photosensitive epilepsy inducing. Yeah, yeah. So. So wait, it's like a collage yeah. style kind of. I mean, he, his drawing is there. He draws like on a trans. He draws the blacks like on a transparent layer, mm-hmm. and then everything behind it is like collaged and i feel like don hertzfeld does that kind of thing uh he got famous doing the rejected cartoons and uh most recently it's such a beautiful day and i think the new ones are like it's the end of the world or something like that i can't remember the title exactly but it's these like rudimentary stick figure drawings and these like black and white spaces and then all this like psychedelic color sort of invades the frame as the story gets weirder but with Dash Shaw, there is no black and white void. The stick figure kind of doodle characters he's drawing are on top of all these like layered backgrounds to where the characters aren't even colored one plain uh, uniform, like, uniform shade. Yeah, it's shifts as they're moving and as the mood changes. Yeah, and then sometimes, you know, there's a psychedelic break, you know, like those visions of Hellbrand was describing where the style of animation completely changes. Like, there's, like, then film footage of dye being dropped into water and, you know, those beautiful psychedelic swirls it makes layered on top of animation or, like, just photographs just, like, slapped in there. Really shitty, like, digicam photos. Yeah. Of, like, Q-tips. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, when somebody's talking about Q-tips, they actually just show photos of Q-tips rather than draw those, which, weird choice. So if you have, like, an interest in, like, graphic novels or, like, those, like, adult swim experiments in, like, different animation styles, it's worthwhile seeking this out. And it's only like 70 minutes. It's super short. And I don't think you could really stand it any longer than it is. So it's kind of like a perfect length. And I really do think it's like one of the most impressively animated works I've seen in a very long time. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of a graphic novel I just finished called Crawl Space, where it's kind of like you're describing just 
layers and layers of psychedelic colors and but not the multimedia aspect like or like a, a steris polyp where like it mm-hmm. changes depending on the mood of the scene yeah or like the different styles keep shifting depending on like the action which is kind of like a modern approach to art like we have all these different tools of all these different schools and eras of animation to work with like we can evoke those for mood almost like a mashup dj like mixing like older objects into like a new configuration uh he creates this sort of like new so dash shaw's our girl talk i think so (laughs) but yeah i know you have the 1930s fleischer cartoons and those you know make things look kind of spooky some characters look they're straight out archie yeah and then like (laughs) one character is an archie character like they have the long uh square tipped nose and like i don't think they're ever wearing a crown but they look like they should be wearing a crown like they look like a blonde Mm. version of jughead but unlike Girl Talk, it's not nostalgic no. for all these older things. It's turning them into, it's transforming them into yeah, like this new, new art character. form. Yeah. And to be honest, like I don't like a lot of modern animation because it's so computer smooth and like rational and just like using the animation to illustrate a story and not actually paying attention to the art form. Like a lot of CG, even like the Pixar and Disney stuff that people think it, is like a cut above. It, it could have been a live action movie. It's just, you know, the effects are slightly more expensive to do. Yeah. There's no reason why it had to be animation necessarily. This movie is like almost about the animation itself and like pushing the art form and like really trying new things. And I think it's going to age much better than like the best Pixar movie from last year or whatever. Because uh, it's such a tactile, hands-on well, personality it's not really dated filled. in any way. Yeah. You know, like. Pixar, that as the technology gets better and better, the movies look worse and worse. Yeah, they look like, screensavers. Like, like Toy Story, the original now, doesn't look that great. Rewatching it, I don't think, at least. I thought it looked horrible um, when we saw it on the TV the other day. That's yeah. like seeing the new Jurassic Park and comparing it to the original. Yeah, you're like, like oh, those dinosaurs look real dumb. Yeah. Yeah, in the original, they used CGI when they had to, but they also use a lot of tactile puppets. Yeah, uh, in order to, And that, like, that, like, has stood the test of time, whereas the new Jurassic Park, in three years, it's going to look dated. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I like the idea that, you know, I don't know why we have to keep cartoons and animation over here, film is over here, like, CGI is this other thing. Like, why can't it just be a free-form if it fits the the story, I mean, I don't see why anything should be off limits. It's like only using like several tools in your arsenal instead of like using everything available to you. And this is a labor intensive process. Like I, I have to imagine this movie took a while to build, uh, but it's so worth it. Yeah. <laughs> Even though it kind of was met with like no fanfare, really. Like I don't remember any positive. I remember reading fanfare for it, but that's because I follow Fantagraphics so closely and like everything they do and like they posted about it constantly. But yeah, if you don't pay attention to Fantagraphics, like I don't recall anyone else talking about it. So maybe it was like a bigger hit with like comic book people than like film people, you know? Maybe. But like not even regular comic book people, the alternative comic book people, (laughs) the comic book people who have a college degree. It's like even more niche. Like, yeah. Yeah. Is that everybody? I think that's a pretty good roundup of kind of like weird uh we all saw a bunch of weird movies yeah (laughs) all those movies have been reviewed on swampflix.com so check us out (laughs) (laughs) i always forget to actually plug stuff you know like just like that was a good plug too that (laughs) felt like a natural segue and i think next time james and i talk we might go back to like a horror subject because we used to do that like almost every episode and we haven't done it in a while whoa so let's do like a horror movie next time cool see y'all in a couple weeks Bye. Bye, everybody.